Hey everyone, it's Victoria. Thanks for tuning in. In my last episode, I talked through the various reasons immigration and nationality may act as barriers to service for survivors of interpersonal violence. Now in this episode, I'll be interviewing Penny Gonzalez Soto, a staff immigration attorney at Student Legal Services here on campus. Penny has been working in the realm of immigration for many years and has a wealth of information to share with us today. Hey, Penny, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm very excited to be talking with you today. Thank you for inviting me. Definitely. We're, I'm so happy you could lend your expertise. I think it's a super important topic. Absolutely. All right. So first, Penny, if could you please tell us about some of your salient identities so listeners can get a better sense of who they're hearing from? Okay. Uh, you know, the first thing that for me, I worked very hard. So the first thing in terms of identity for me, especially at CSU, is I'm an attorney, right? And for me, what that really means, I'm a person who listens. Mm-hmm. That is, for me, my the biggest part of my job is I listen to what somebody wants to come in and talk about. The other really important part for me is that when you come and talk to me, the expectation is that what you tell me is confidential. And mm-hmm. I think that's very important for students at CSU to understand and to know they do have somebody who they can go talk to. The other, you know, identities for me that are very important is I am a part of the Latinx community. Mm. I come with that cultural background. I come with very different traditions. I come with, um, oftentimes it means uh, uh, another language that I speak. So that is a very deep core of who I am. The other couple of them is I'm a single mother. And Mm -hmm. so I come with a very different perspective as an attorney and um, as a single mother and looking at students and and understanding where that student is moving forward and why they may be coming to student legal services instead of calling their parents for assistance, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is um, important that that sort of service is available to students. And then The other part of me is that I'm actually a first-generation college student. Hmm. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And at this point, I do have a sister and a brother who have both gone to college. But it was a very uh, both exciting and unique, but a difficult situation when I decided to go to college because I really didn't have anybody to guide me forward. And so that resonates with me always when we have students that come into student legal services and asking questions to remember that not necessarily the first generation, but that these are very simply things that have never been encountered because I lived through that, Mm. I think, in a much deeper way. Thank you so much for sharing that and for your openness and being very upfront about those identities. I think that's really important for listeners to, to hear and it also sounds like you lend a very particular expertise, which is awesome. I hope so. Yeah. I hope it works out that way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, could you tell us um, about your role here on campus a little bit more? Absolutely. So I came to CSU 
full time August of end of August, actually August 26th of 2019. So I started at CSU the same day that students started classes. Oh, great. But I was contracting with student legal services for a couple years before that as an immigration attorney. Mm. But I'm a staff attorney in student legal services. And so my job is really counseling students on a variety of topics. And some of the things that I've dealt with so far um, in this past school year, we do a lot of landlord tenant things. So we review leases, we're helping students deal with issues in their housing, like repairs or security deposit concerns. I also have started to take on some of the family law cases. So I will counsel individuals on we're looking at doing a divorce or parental responsibilities or parenting time. I do contract reviews. So sometimes students who are at the point of graduating from CSU are mm-hmm. getting um, employment contracts. And so we'll help review those. We do a lot of consumer issues, whether it's you purchased a vehicle that broke down on you immediately and how do you deal with that? Mm. We also deal with insurance claims and collection processes, all things that are very hard to navigate and trying to figure out those processes. I personally specialize in immigration law. So in addition to all the other things that student legal services deals with, I also do the immigration side of it. As you um, may be aware, we do have three attorneys in student legal services. Mm -hmm. So we can actually handle any topic. I mean, pretty much anything that comes into that office, one of the three of us can handle. The one thing that we do not do, we do not advise on tax issues, though. That's the one area that... um, neither of the three of us have delved into. Mm. I will tell you that our office is 100% confidential. We function the same way any other law office functions. And you come into our office and everything that you tell us is 100% confidential, which I think is really important for students to understand Yes, that um, you can come in safely and talk to us. The other thing to remember about student legal services And my role is that we do not provide legal representation. So that means we're not coming in or we're not going into court with a student. We're not going to a legal hearing for a student. Our role is really to advise and counsel and guide, again, listen to what the student is hoping to get out of or how to deal with or what resolution they're looking for. We're helping the students strategize. If we come across a case that we feel really does need to have legal counsel. We're mm-hmm. very honest with the student. We let them know this is not something you can go forward on your own. And we can definitely refer to a local attorney in the Fort Collins area that works with that particular issue, but more importantly, has worked with students before. Oh, That's wow. really important to, to find individuals who are attorneys in Fort Collins that have that particular experience. And then of course, if that student decides to go forward with that private attorney, payment to that attorney is dealt with privately and and the student has to handle that. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's amazing to hear about all of the different things that student legal services can provide to students. I think it's really important, as you mentioned, with the confidentiality piece, definitely, but all of those other services, it's awesome. Absolutely. And with that, um, in the realm of immigration, what kind of support do you or have you offered to students at CSU? So what's great is Student Legal Services and CSU have recognized the fact that immigration law is something that 
affects a large portion of the students, a large percentage of the students at CSU, not only students who are in perhaps a permanent status and are looking to do citizenship or a student who is undocumented, Mm -hmm. but also international students. So some of the things that we've tackled um, this past semester was one thing is DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Mm -hmm. It's a a temporary status that students have, and I've helped them through renewal processes and moving things forward to make sure that they continue on with their status. One of the other things we do in the realm of immigration is very simply planning for the future. Mm. DACA students is a temporary status. Oftentimes, um, there are other statuses that, for instance, F1 students who are students um, international students who are here just to study, mm-hmm. planning for the future. So again, we t- work with the international students. We also work with students who are applying for what is called adjustment of status, which is permanent residency, permanent status in the United States. Mm. We also help students who are looking to become U.S. citizens and do what is called the naturalization process. So I can, I've been doing immigration for just under 20 years. And so oh. I can advise on just about any immigration topic. If we do have a student who wants the employment side of immigration more in depth, we have an expert, an immigration attorney who specializes in the employment side, and we can definitely refer to her. Mm. She actually comes in as a contract attorney during the school year once a month to meet with students who um, need that particular experience that I don't have. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I do is I have specialized for those 20 years and what are called victim immigration cases. So they're VAWA cases, the Violence Against Women's Act, and U visas, which are victims of a crime visa. So that is something that I have particularly specialized for the past 20 years. One of the wonderful things about Student Legal Services, we take a holistic view of the immigration cases. Mm -hmm. So I have known from my experience for the 20 years that students may not know the full history of how they arrived into the United States mm-hmm. or how they ended up with the status that they that they have or the lack of that status. So when students are comfortable and they come in and they want to meet with us about an immigration case, and if they're comfortable with it and they're willing to allow it, I will encourage them to include a person who knows that history to be part of the appointment. Mm. And it's usually by telephone, so oftentimes a parent, but sometimes it's not. It could be an older sibling. And the reason that we like to do that is I want to be able to truly evaluate, is there any possible path for this individual to legalize their status? Mm. And so when I include that other person, I'm able to evaluate the entire family situation. And what I'm searching for in those evaluations is any way for that student to legalize. And it could be, for instance, maybe their parent had a pending immigration case for the past 20 years and that the student might have a benefit from that petition because they were a child when that petition was submitted. Mm. I have I have had in my career a handful of cases where I discovered in a holistic view that a client's grandparent was actually a US citizen. Oh wow. Who then under the current immigration under those immigration laws at that time pass that citizenship on to the client's parent Mm. who then passed it on to the client. So I've had clients that turn out to be U.S. citizens and it may take us a few months or a couple of years to gather all the evidence to prove that. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, all we have to do is go in and process a U.S. passport. So it does take a lot of work to figure that out, mm-hmm. but it's amazing when it happens, when oh, you I discover bet. those hidden paths that nobody's thought to ask. That's incredible. Yeah. The other the other part of the services that I think are very important for students is just that full immigration evaluation for the student. I have found that many students have never fully looked. Their parents may have at some point in the past done an evaluation with an attorney, Mm -hmm. but the student just doesn't have that information. So I think it's very important for that student to understand how does the immigration process work? What are the ways that a person can actually legalize their status? And how do you if you have a potential way in the future, whether it's three years from now or five years from now, how do you protect that benefit in the future? So how do you mm-hmm. make sure that you continue to be eligible for that status in the future? I also want them to understand how to recognize when that avenue opens up to them in the future. Mm. It's very, it's a very important thing to just simply know what it is that you're dealing with. It's that information empowers you to be able to strategize for the future. That's a great point. Thank you. Thank you. As you may already know, the WGAC works with survivors of interpersonal violence, which we understand to be relationship violence, sexual assault and harassment and stalking. And you kind of touched on this when you talked about VAWA, but could you tell us a little bit about how, in your experience, interpersonal violence intersects with immigration for survivors? So, as we talked before, I specialize in the Violence Against Women Act cases and then Mm -hmm. later the U visa cases. And what, I mean, both of those programs are founded in the knowledge knowledge that the majority of us had already had, but that immigration took a while to, um, to um, acknowledge mm. that a person's immigration status is oftentimes the tool that is used to maintain somebody in that abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. That is as simple as, okay, go ahead and call the police. Um, who are they going to believe when they come? Are they going to believe me, who's the U.S. citizen? Or are they going to believe you? So then what happens? Right. The police are not called. The U visa was designed, VAWA requires that there be an actually family relationship. So there has to be a marriage or you have to be related by blood of some sort hmm. in order for a VAWA case to work. The U visa was designed to address when there was a crime committed against an undocumented person and the fear of calling the police was preventing that individual from cooperating or even calling the police, right? Mm -hmm. From preventing that particular case. And so that began to help individuals who were not in, for instance, a a couple that's not married. Mm -hmm. The U visa, you could not do a VAWA case if there was a, a, the police were called and you do it. You couldn't, you couldn't qualify for a VAWA case, but under the U visa, you could qualify because there wasn't that family relationship requirement. Mm. So it allowed when there was a significant other, but not the actual marriage or the family relationship in existence, or even a stranger in that sense. So the immigration 
intersects in allowing those individuals to continue to abuse immigrants and using the immigration status as the tool to maintain them in their relationship, but also these particular immigration laws empowers. Once you apply and you're approved, it empowers you to be able to move forward in your life without the fear of this individual coming back. I think it, uh, or the fear of this individual maintaining that power over you, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a situation of immigration being used as a horrible tool against survivors, right? And the fear of abandoning your child, right? Because often the families are, we have mixed families. And so you have a uh, one parent who's a U.S. citizen, one parent who's undocumented. You have a child who's born in the United States. And that fear of being separated from your child was the other tool that's used of uh, mm-hmm. that I'm going to get placed into deportation proceedings. My child's going to be left with this parent who is being abusive. Mm-hmm. So it is um, a, a hard situation to to deal with. The, the thing that I can say in that VAWA in the UV says, I'm, I'm thankful that they exist. Yeah. What hurts me about both of those programs is that it does cause the victim to have to relive the abuse. Sure. And both of them require statements by the individual who's applying for that benefit to talk about the abuse and how they were abused. And I think that is depending on how far out you are from the abuse I think that is a very hard thing for most people to have to do when those wounds are still, and not physical wounds, just um, it could be mental abuse, sentimental abuse, um, verbal abuse. When those wounds are still so fresh, to have to think about applying under VAWA or the U visa, I think is very difficult. And VAWA doesn't have a timeline. U visas, depending on the county that you're living, oftentimes has a timeline. In Well County, which is where I reside and where I did had my private practice, you have to apply within five years mm-hmm. of that case being opened. Um, and if it closes before that five years, you may not be able to get the certifications for the U visa. Mm. So it does require you to move quickly um, at the beginning. So it's been, you know, uh, uh, the hardest cases, but I think the most rewarding cases, very honestly, sure. I've had in this situation, I've had clients, my youngest client, the very beginning of my career was nine years old. Oh, wow. And she, she, we went under a VAWA case and I've had individuals who have probably been in their sixties and their seventies, um, on both VAWA cases and U visa cases. Mm. And so it is the whole breadth of it um, in terms of how immigration really does come into play for survivors. And um, there are important programs for people to know about, very honestly. Absolutely. And with all of that, 
in your experience, what's the likelihood that people will be able to access U visa or um, documentation through VAWA? So VAWA is probably, if you have that family relationship, whether it's a marriage or there is an adult um, child or a parent, VAWA is the program that you want to go under, mm-hmm. very honestly. It has less requirements um, and will move more forward. U visas, unfortunately, now applying for a U visa requires cooperation of law enforcement or the court to do a certification. And that has become harder and harder mm-hmm. as we move forward. But this the timeline. If you're able to fulfill and actually apply for the U visa, the wait is anywhere from six to eight years right now for the U visa to be processed. Mm. There are only 10,000 U visas per year. And so the backlog is too long, very honestly. And there isn't protections when a VAWA case or a U visa case are pending. There are no protections at all in the meantime. So um, it is very possible. I have had many cases go through VAWA and U visas and gain their status. Mm. But they are slowly, if not already, so backlogged. It it oftentimes, especially for U visa cases, it seems that I'm not going to hear a word for six years. Right. Why do I apply? Right. And you know, my attitude has always been if you never apply, that clock never starts running. Mm-hmm. You never get to move forward to the front of the line. Um, and it is a benefit that if you can qualify, you should absolutely apply for it. Mm-hmm. I have never had a Vower U visa case denied that we applied for. But I also was very careful to make sure we submitted sufficient evidence from the very beginning. Mm. And I have started to see, I'm on several listservs for attorneys and especially immigration attorneys, where we are starting to see rejections or denials of U visa cases Mm. for lack of evidence. And those cases take, it's a lot of work up front to submit them complete to begin with. I think sometimes individuals will submit an application with the expectation that they will fill in the gaps at a later point, that has never been my mode of moving forward. Mm. Let's get it submitted completely with the hopes that your case will move forward a little bit quicker if need be. But it's possible. It just, it takes a, a um, painfully long time Mm. to know whether or not you've been approved. I see. Okay. And with that, what are the financial costs and length of time? You kind of touched on that with the U visa Mm -hmm. and others, but what are the financial costs and length of time involved in pursuing citizenship in particular? And in your experience, are there people who are barred from accessing this path? Okay. So citizenship or naturalization is how it's referred to in immigration Mm. is a process that comes after you obtain lawful permanent residency. Mm. So lawful permanent residency is always the first step. Lawful permanent residency gives you the right to live and reside in the United States 
you can travel in and out of the United States um, with really no issue. Those cards are normally issued for 10 years at a time. And the only reason that the cards expire is to update the technology in the card. And of course, to update a picture of mm. the individual. The actual residence, even if you don't renew your permanent residency card, your residency doesn't expire. It mm. can it can be destroyed. Um, the best way to know, the best way to destroy your permanent residency is to um, have a criminal conviction, mm. right? The other way that you can choose to give up the permanent residence if you want to go live in another country, because you are barred from living permanently in another country as a permanent residency, okay. as a permanent resident. Now, the cost of permanent residency can run from a ballpark of $3,000 to $8,000. Mm. And what those costs include is initial petitions by potentially a family member or an employer, mm-hmm. the actual processing costs of the permanent residency. There's a medical examination. There's biometrics that are both fingerprints and pictures. You may have to do a waiver, and sometimes that includes attorney costs. Now, the length of time to get through this process, for instance, if you are in the United States legally, you entered on a visitor visa, you come into the United States, and you actually get married to a U.S. citizen. You could apply for your permanent residence, and you'd be on the lower end of this $3,000 to $8,000 estimation. Mm. And it would probably take you anywhere from 13 months to 24 months to gain your permanent residency. Mm. And you would get to do that while you're physically in the United States. Now, if you're going, if you're doing an immigration process through a sibling who's a U.S. citizen, and let's say you're from Mexico, it's going to take you more than 20 years to even get to the front of the line to get your permanent residency. And during those 20 years, there's absolutely no benefit or protection for you from immigration. Mm. So you can see that the process depends on the path that you're going down and what are the eligibility. So there are two parts to an immigration evaluation. And the first part is, do we even have a way to start a process? And these are the things that I actually do in a full immigration evaluation. So we look to see, is there a way for you to start? Most common ways you have an immediate family member who could petition for you. Mm. A family member who's a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. Immediate meaning your spouse, your parent, your sibling, or your adult child. Mm -hmm. Right? That's it. That's what immediate family is. Or you can have an employer that's able to sponsor a case. And you do this initial petition And what this initial petition does for you is it preserves your place in line for all the other people in that same category waiting to legalize their status, right? So it's basically a a marker in a line of people. The second part of that evaluation is what happens when it's actually your time to legalize your status? Is there something called a visa bulletin? It is issued on a monthly basis and it tells you these categories. So for instance, the best category to be in to gain your permanent residency is to be the spouse of a U.S. citizen Mm -hmm. or the parent of an adult U.S. citizen Mm. or the minor child of a U.S. citizen. If you fall into any one of those three categories, there isn't really a waiting period other than what the processing timeline might be. But if you fall in any other category, the categories 
that come below those immediate relatives of U.S. citizens each have a timeline. They have a quota of visas available every year, and they're actually split up by different countries. Hmm. So this visa bulletin that comes out every year says, okay, what category are you in? And where are we at in this calendar of visas? And when will it be your time? And so this calendar has to get to your petition. So the date that you did this ad- initial petition by a family member of an employer and has to get to that date or past, right? Mm-hmm. So if you apply today, the calendar would have to get to um, June 11, 2020 or past it in whatever category you fall in. It is okay. only at that point, right? And you're waiting two years to over 20 years, right? To get to the front of the line in this in this waiting time. Mm. It is only at that point where immigration actually turns to the immigrant who's trying to gain a benefit to see if they're actually eligible. So you've waited a very long time, still not knowing whether or not you're going to gain status. Mm-hmm. The kinds of things that immigration looks at for residency are things like a criminal history. Those are the kinds of things that can make a person not eligible for immigration um, status. Or have you been previously deported? Have you been in and out of the United States? Have you ever been in the United States? And how did you enter with permission or without? And they want to know the dates and the specificity of what was going on during those travel periods. Mm-hmm. They'll look to see whether or not you're eligible for a waiver, how likely it is that a waiver would be approved. Now we have new issues of, you know, how likely are you become a public charge? So this public charge evaluation. All of those things come into play only after you've gotten past this waiting period. So you can imagine if you've waited out this waiting period in the United States, that potentially there are issues because you've not had status for all of these years that you've been waiting. Some of these issues might have arose and you might no longer be eligible for something that you've been waiting to get, right? Um, it's a very difficult process, very complicated. Now, yeah. citizenship or naturalization comes after you gain permanent residency. And it's normally available only after you've had permanent residency for five years. And it has its own requirements. First and foremost, you have to be able to read, write, and speak English. You have some exceptions that might apply to that English requirement. And it's a combination of how, you know, what is your age and how long have you been a permanent resident? There might actually be some exemptions also depending on, you know, is there a medical reason why you don't have the ability to learn or retain English? Hmm. Other um, requirements or eligibility evaluations have to do again with your criminal history since you've become a permanent resident. Have you um, tried to vote in the meantime and you weren't allowed to because you weren't a U.S. citizen? Did you register to vote by accident? Has there been any sort of fraud or misrepresentation in your actual residency process? There's an over, um, there's a general, an overwhelming evaluation about good moral character when you become a U.S. citizen. So you can imagine all sorts of things that come back, come into good moral character. One of the examples that people don't, can't even imagine is they ask you, do you owe back taxes? Mm. So if you owe back taxes, you may not be able to do citizenship at that point. You'd have to get that tax bill paid off. And so it is the citizenship application. If anybody is ever 
interested in looking at how difficult it is to become a U.S. citizen. It's a form N as a Nancy 400. And it's about 22 pages of questions. Oh, wow. And it asks you about your entire history, um, your relationship to different groups, organizations. It is a very thorough examination. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. It's a lot of information. I will tell it you, is. I have submitted a proposal for the diversity symposium okay. that really talks about those two parts of the evaluation of how does a person even start an immigration process? Because mm -hmm. I think it is hard to grasp the concept of you have individuals who have family members who are U.S. citizens or perhaps permanent residents, but you still haven't gained status and understanding that, you know, this line of waiting is incredibly long. Yeah. And I don't think that, that people understand that, you know, if your your only path is through a U.S. citizen brother or sister, you're waiting more than 20 years to gain status. So it isn't for lack of trying that some individuals do not have legal status in the United States. It's simply the process is broken. Hmm. I appreciate you saying that. And I think that'd be a really interesting session to attend because I agree that I don't think folks fully understand the gravity or the length of time, any of that that is involved in that path. Yeah, how difficult the process really is. It really, yeah, it's very complex. So with that, is there anything else you want listeners to know? You know, I just really want to share with the listeners that I'm in student legal services to help. I'm, I'm, I want to help in any way possible. I knew actually in high school that I wanted to be an attorney. Hmm. And for me, an attorney is to help people. It is really a public service position. I, and I really want to hear from students and their families what they want to see student legal services do to help students. We want to know what is it, what else can we do other than all the different things that we do now. Now, I will tell you, as attorneys, we are governed by rules of professional conduct and ethics, but we want to, as a team, we want to help students through those things that just happen in life. We all know when you're in school, life happens. Yeah. And we are working to guide you through those things that happen. We really want to give you the skills. So when we're guiding you through a particular problem, we're not only dealing with that particular problem, we're trying to give you the skills to address issues, other issues that come up in your life. And so we're helping students, you know, we do a, for instance, if we do a, uh, an appointment in the office, we'll pull up on our computers and show individuals what's the website that we went to to get this information. How do you research? We look at the forms together because we really want students to gain those skills because, you know, once you leave CSU, we want to, to help you and empower you to move forward in your lives. I will tell you, one of the most important things for me is how seriously student legal services takes that we are a safe, confidential, welcoming place for students to come and ask questions. Mm -hmm. If your question is a legal question, we want you to come in. We're a great place to start to ask questions. We want to be able to help you. Great. Thank you so much for your willingness to lend your expertise to the podcast. And 
I think it's a great resource, Student Legal Services, and then you in particular for listeners that may have questions. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for your work. It's really important work. Thank you so much. And thank you again for inviting me. I think this is an amazing, important topic for individuals to know this is a service that exists at CSU. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you again. Take care. You take care. Have a good day. Be safe too. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support to all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot e-d-u. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in the podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.